Three deeper cuts. A bomba clot. Yeah, that's right. For the Rastaman. Good afternoon and welcome to the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist. I'm your host, Chuck G. Every week, we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin, because without the high exposure to 10% buffer neutral formula that I experienced during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about half of the crazy things that I post up here at 3 Deeper Cuts Publishing. And if you're not a pathologist and you are listening to this right now, thank you and welcome. A couple of announcements for today. What do we got? We're doing okay? Doing Irie? I feel like I was a Jamaican trapped in an Indian person's body. I've always been enamored by Ethiopia, Ethiopian culture, history. I don't know, man. I got to go there. I got to go. If it wasn't for this damn pandemic, if they didn't let that virus out of the lab, I would have gone during my last year residency. Actually, I don't even know about that. Probably would have happened. Yeah, pretty sure it would have happened. What's going on in the trenches of community practice? What's going on with you guys? I'm doing well. Uh, we got a lot of diseases, necrotizing granulomas. First of all, if you're not into human disease, like you shouldn't be listening to this. You shouldn't be listening to this. We're, we're nailing down our niche. Nietzsche. We're, uh, we're the Nietzsche. We're, we're nailing down the Nietzsche. Sounds like sushi. Uh, yeah, so this account or this podcast, this newsletter exists for the practicing pathologist in community practice, for the practicing clinician in community practice to help you be uh, fitter, happier, and just all around more excited about your practice. And where did this come from? When I was about halfway through my intern year, I had this come to Jesus moment where I thought to myself, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then do something else. And I peeled all the layers of all the things that I had tried in my life. And at the end of the day, like despite the BS that you have to deal with in community practice and just generally speaking in medicine, this is, this is what brings me the most joy. And talking about it, brings me even more joy and sharing the lessons that I learned of how to be efficient, how to stay fit, how to enjoy the ride. That is what I wish to leave you with on the three deeper cuts podcast. Now these lessons are not unique to medicine. You can apply them in any profession, but I can only speak about what I know. I can't I can't make you a better engineer. I can't make you a better consultant for all you McKinsey douchebags out there. I can't make you a better tennis player. Actually, I could probably help you out with your forehand and and possibly your serve. I I haven't played tennis in years, but I was was pretty good back in the day. You know what I'm saying? State qualifier. But, yeah, so we talk about topics that are of interest to 
the laboratorian, the pathologist, the family medicine doctor, the internal medicine doctor, maybe even the surgeon. Just people that are jamming out in hospital medicine. People that are trying to do better. So uh, every now and then I do a book report. Every now and then I read an essay. Some of the essays are written by me. Some of, the, some of it's just bullshit. And some of it's written by people that I really admire. People that are a thousand times smarter than I am. Who I wish to learn from, emulate, and apply the lessons back to clinical practice. So I'm assuming you're busy. I'm assuming you don't have time to read all the same shit that I do. Okay? I'm assuming that you just, you, you want to get your work done and get on with your life. But you can tune into this podcast if you wish to dabble in some other things. And so one of those other things today is going to be an essay from Chumath uh, Pala, you know, I'm not even going to, Chumath P, the guy from the All In podcast, uh, the owner of the Golden State Warriors, you know, like one of the first executives at Facebook, first programmers at Facebook, uh, serial entrepreneur. I, I actually don't even know all the things that he's done, and it's irrelevant. I just want to read you this essay right now. It, it's not irrelevant. It, it's it's He is balls deep in the AI field, in the tech industry, and and he also happens to be a very good writer. And I, I got to clean up the stuff that I write, man. I'm all over the place. It's, it's, it's not always open mic on the interweb. So I want to practice cleaning, cleaning stuff up. So this is an essay from Chamath's, Chamath's uh, X feed. It was a long form post this last week. And I'm just going to read it to you. And if there's anything that applies to practice, like specifically diagnostic medicine, or clinical medicine. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can tie it in off the fly. But in any case, the title is Large Language Models, How to Train Them, and XAI's Grok. So if you don't know what Grok is, Grok is, the, is basically the AI built into the X, formerly Twitter's user interface. You got to pay a couple extra bucks a month to get it. I do because I like to troll people. And it's... Yeah, it's a large language model that integrates some humor into it, and I think it's interesting. Uh, it, it doesn't cure cancer, but anyways, let's get into this essay. Here we go. When OpenAI released ChatGPT in November 2022, it took the world by storm, reaching over a million users in only five days. This kind of viral attention was previously unheard of in AI. Driven by how closely the underlying language model seemed to replicate human intelligence. Since then, there has been an explosion in AI activity, ranging from applications built on top of ChatGPT, which seek to improve efficiency for mundane tasks, to new chatbots like XAI's Grok, which aim to replace ChatGPT altogether. This explosion happened so quickly that few of us really took a step back to understand the basics. So we wanted to sit down and understand how large language models work to figure out how new entrants like XAI will compete. So what is a LLM, large language model? A large language model is a type of neural network that can ingest strings of text and then predict the next sequence of words. 
Intelligent chatbots like ChatGPT are specialized versions of these language models that have been trained for the specific purpose of generating responses to questions. To understand and generate text like humans, there are a few things that language models must be able to do. Number one, understand the meanings of various words. Number two, understand the context of words in relation to other words. Number three, Remember long strings of these words. Number four, do all of the above very quickly. Until recently, even the best-in-class language models struggled to do all four. They were either slow and inefficient to train, had poor memory, or were bad at recognizing context. This resulted in models that failed to effectively replicate human abilities. In 2017, a new type of architecture called a transformer was introduced that promised to solve many of these issues. It was called transformer. Two key breakthroughs, positional encoding and self-attention, made this architecture much more efficient to train and better at recognizing the context of words. So remember that. That's positional encoding and self-attention. As language models were trained with more compute power and data using this architecture, new capabilities emerged. Today, models can reason about topics, write code, and even understand information across multiple modalities, including images and audio. But how do LLMs work? LLMs work by first taking a string of words and representing them as sequences of numbers called vectors. You remember that from your high school calculus. Each number within the vector captures the meaning of a word in relation to other words. Think of this like a graph. When two words are closely related, they're mapped closely together. So then he's got some visual representations. So on the left, it's a vector representation. Uh, So he says, the man is walking. And then he's got, in brackets, uh, a list of numbers in decimal point. And then, and then on the right-hand side of this diagram is maps. So the vector representation, representation maps relationships with other words. So uh, here he has like a four-quadrant scatter plot. And in one quadrant, it has the words the, it, and them. And then the bottom left is brother, man, woman, child. The top right is there is not exists. And and the bottom right is walking, running, hiking, sports. So the position of these words, the position of each word in the sentence is also represented as a vector, allowing the model to capture context without needing to process each word serially. A key development that made transformers much more efficient than previous models. The self-attention layer, which is what transformer models are known for, then allows the model to hone in on relevant words to further improve contextual awareness. Take the following sentence. Yesterday, I went to the bank to deposit money. The word money allows the model to understand that the sentence refers to a money bank, not a river bank. So how do you build an LLM? So first of all, just let me just pause there. So right off the bat, language large language models. So like just take, for example, a chat bot to explain 
questions that a patient might have about placental pathology. There's, there, I think there's, there's a pediatric pathologist I know who's on this email list, and I bet there are some patients with recurrent pregnancy loss who are wondering what their pathology report means. They might even be wondering, what does maternal decidual vasculopathy mean? Uh, so I wonder if a chatbot could be generated that included all of the relevant explanations from like an expert placental or an expert pediatric pathologist who looks at placentas all day and has written hundreds of papers on placentas. I wonder if you could just aggravate that into like a niche chatbot just for that demographic. Um, I just I find that interesting. It, it's actually happened to me where somebody called in and had some questions about their thing, uh, uh, about their placenta, and uh, yeah, it's it's not that I don't enjoy talking to them. It's just that it would be nice to aggregate all of the peer reviewed literature into a user interface like an LLM. That would that would just be an interesting experiment. Okay, so how do you build an LLM? Large language models like ChatGPT and Grok are built in two key stages. Number one, the training stage, which feeds the model billions and often trillions of words so that the model can learn what different words mean and how closely they are related with the goal of eventually generating text by predicting the next word. The fine-tuning stage, so this is number two, the fine-tuning stage, which trains this pre-trained model to perform a particular kind of task like answering questions. Stage one, training the model. To train a language model to generate text, you first need to collect a massive amount of data, data on which to teach the model to predict the next word. This is achieved by scraping the internet for text data from a diverse range of sources, and then cleaning this up to remove duplicates, spelling errors, and issues that you don't want the model to learn. Once the training data set is assembled, it is then turned into a series of incomplete sentences that are used to train the model to predict the next word. So uh, there's a diagram here. The man is walking, and then token one, the, token two, man, token three, is, and then token four just has a blank question mark. Uh, language models are, the, are types of neural networks that use layers of nodes to generate their predictions. Nodes are like gears in a machine. Individually, they lack meaning. But when trained to work together, nodes can understand and interpret complex data like language. So, and then he's got a little pictorial thing uh, on the left, bottom left. It says random weights and biases. And then on the right, a trained neural network. Okay, so this is a nice visual. He's just, he has like a little uh, uh, a bubble with a bunch of cogs. And uh, the random bubble, they're all separate. Like there's like air in between them. And then on the, the bubble that has a trained neural network, it's the cogs that are neatly fitting together in a little bundle. And it looks like if you were to you know, turn one, they would move uh, in synchrony with one another. Uh, so that's a nice little analogy or a nice visual. Okay. Initially, the connections between nodes will be assembled randomly. So the model's prediction will also be random. But as the model is trained, the nodes learn to predict the output that we want to see by adjusting the weights and biases that connect them together. 
The number of weights and biases that a model uses to make a prediction is called its parameters. The more parameters there are, the more complex the model. While this often leads to better performance, it also comes at the cost of higher latency and computational demand. New language models like Grok aim to outperform larger models using fewer parameters by improving on the architecture of models and leveraging higher quality training data. Okay, so another set of bar graphs here. Parameter count of leading LLMs. So on the far left, GPT-4 is a bar graph. It goes all the way up to 8 point, or 1.8 T. So I, I think that means trillion. So 1.8 trillion parameters for GPT-4. And then there's BARD, which is 1.6 trillion. Uh, GPT-3, which is 175 billion. So that's, that drops off a lot. Interesting. Uh, and then 70 billion for Llama 2. And then 33 billion for Grok 0. Uh, big drop-off from GPT-4. During the training process, the language model learns to map the relationships between words and predict the next word in a sequence. But it still needs to learn how to perform specific tasks, like responding to questions. This is the role of fine-tuning. Stage two, fine-tuning the model. To build a chatbot that can, that can respond to questions, pre-trained models are trained on thousands of examples of prompts, in the, desired question, in the desired question and answer format until the model can predict an appropriate response to a given question. Then, once the model can predict answers in the desired format, the human feedback is used to rank several of the model's possible responses from best to worst in a process called reinforcement learning from human feedback, or RLHF. This feedback is used to train a second reward model to guide the LLM to predict the best response. Companies building new language models today face two major challenges. The first is that exponential increases in the amount of data used to train a new model uh, only result in linear improvements in performance. So, with an abundance of data available for training, all else equal, models eventually converge towards a single level of performance. That's interesting. The second is a lack of context. Many models like ChatGPT lack context beyond their training period, meaning that they have no awareness of information and events beyond a given date. When asked about information after this period, they, not, they either refuse to answer or, worse still, hallucinate and provide a convincing but made-up response. So if you want to build a chatbot that is constantly improving and context-aware, how do you do it? Okay, so this, so I don't know if you've ever tried this, but like one time, I think when ChatGPT came out, like two weeks into it, I asked the thing how to create, <laughs> like how do you perform a below the leg amputation? And it like froze up and it said only, this should only be done by a licensed medical um, professional or something. Uh, and I thought to myself, let me just call my neighborhood podiatrist. No, I'm just kidding. That, that's fucked up. But uh, yeah, bottom line for applications of diagnostic medicine context is going to be everything. So I know that there's an artificial intelligence model, obviously with voice brook, you know, voice recognition models for, um, you know, building diagnostic reports in our line of work. 
And I know that like they're tailored to different specialties in medicine. Um, but context. So, okay. We as pathologists, we kind of work in a histologic context, right? So findings, findings of certain cells within tissue, uh, you have to take into account the architecture of the, um, of the cells or the glands within that block of tissue. So it's like, okay, like an example would be adenomyosis. You get adenomyosis, just a general term of, you could have it in the endometrium, endometrial glands going into the muscle, uh, or in the gallbladder, adenomyomatosis, which can be like a little nodule bulging out of the gallbladder. But those glands are just sitting in the tissue. They're not cutting through the tissue malignantly and generating like a, a an inflammatory response or desmoplastic response. So anyways, that's what we mean by like tissue context. So the other thing that is relevant for daily practice would be context of report generation. You know what I'm saying? So like building... So I think for routine practice, like the the chat bot that you could build for answering a question that a pathologist has in signing out a report. So like you might want to know the degrees of uncertainty that an abnormal immunophenotype has. So like, let's say colon cancer metastatic to the liver, but what if it's like some weird variant and you just want to know, um, you want to have this chat bot look up, how frequently does metastatic colon cancer lose expression of certain epithelial markers or certain nuclear transcription factors by immunohistochemistry? How frequently does that happen? Now, there is a tool out there called ImmunoQuery, which can kind of like give you a ballpark, but it's, I find it to be a little bit not friendly to use. Like there's definitely, it would be a fun experiment to just, to be able to dictate into this chat bot and be like, uh, Hey Grok, uh, how frequently does colon cancer lose expression of, I don't know, CK20 when it goes to the liver, right? Or, or, or a nice one would be like small cell carcinoma because like the people at, so small cell carcinoma is this highly aggressive lung tumor that occurs in smokers and it has a characteristic look to it under a microscope. And it generally has like a characteristic staining pattern. However, there's new variants. There's new genetic variants of small cell carcinoma coming out, um, especially in the last like two years. So it can happen where you have a small cell carcinoma that looks like that diagnosis, but it's negative for the classic markers, synaptophysin and chromogranin. It's, it's super rare, but like it has happened. It's been reported in the literature. What if you had a chat bot that could just tailor that search for you, you know, without you having to uh, thumb through all of the, uh, all the papers on that topic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's not being lazy because you still have to write the prompt Right, I mean, you have to say it in a certain way so that the the chat bot is able to recognize what you're asking and only p- 
pull new papers, but I think that'd be fun to use. Anyways, uh, let's, let's get back on track. So, okay. So if you want to build a chatbot that is constantly improving and context aware, how do you do it? A new entrance to the race, XAI and Grok. XAI launched its new chatbot Grok on November 4th, 2023, just four month, months after the company was officially announced. Grok's initial model, Grok Zero, demonstrated impressive performance with limited resources, directly competing with Meta's LLAMA2 model using half the complexity, 70 billion versus 33 billion parameters. Its next iteration, Grok 1, showcased even better results, surpassing all other models in its compute class, including GPT 3.5, which took OpenAI several years to achieve. What makes XAI's model unique is its access to a proprietary and constantly evolving data set of tweet activity, which generates over 12 terabytes of data daily, containing extensive data on human interactions and current events in multiple formats, text, images, and even audio. In distributing its model to an existing user base of more than 500 million, or is that, yeah, is more than 500 million monthly average users on X, Access to this data set of constantly updated information can help minimize hallucinations and provide more context-aware responses when presented with questions about recent events. XAI can quickly retrieve information from reputable sources on X and use the wisdom of crowds to interpret the sentiment around a given topic, allowing the model to provide a more context-aware responses to queries. Having access to this data in multiple formats, such as images and audio, can also help XAI's model achieve a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the world. For example, understanding a person's facial expressions while they are speaking results in a much richer interpretation of their speech than just an audio recording. In the same way, leveraging multimodal inputs on X can help XAI's model better understand the context of news and other world events. The final differentiator is distribution. XAI already has built-in distribution through the X platform, which has more than 500 million monthly active users. Assuming modest uptake, this allows XAI to rapidly improve its models through much faster reinforcement learning from human feedback loops than other models, providing the company with another set of proprietary data that can help propel its model further than competitors. Conclusion, as the foundation lay foundational layer of language models is becoming increasingly difficult to improve with more data. The quality of the data that these models are trained on becomes the becomes a key differentiator. XAI's Grok benefits from a vast data set of diverse and up-to-date information in multiple formats, as well as pre-existing user base of 500 million people to rapidly improve its models. With high-quality real-time data and the capital to scale, Grok has the opportunity to become the most up-to-date, customizable, and context-aware language model in the race to achieve AGI. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed above are current as of the date of this document and are subject to change without notice. Materials referenced above will be provided for educational purposes only. None of the above will include investment advice and recommendation or an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any securities or investment products. Okay, there you go. So I wanted to read that to you because I thought that was just a really nice, concise, long-form explanation of how large language models work 
And I really appreciated that. Um, so, like, where do we go forward with this? There is a difference between asking something like Grok to generate a list of what are the top five trending topics in professional basketball. There's a big difference between asking it to do that and asking it to tell you um, what are the last five papers on divergent genetics in small cell carcinoma of the lung. Because you're dealing with an immediate life or death situation, right? Like small cell carcinoma of the lung. This is just an example. Like has a very specific, like it's got like a different chemotherapy regimen. And, and again, this isn't like unique to small cell. This is just like medical decision-making in general. So there's going to be a lot more regulation around that. And, you know, like any old chat bot is not going to just be allowed to be released into community practice. You know, it's going to be siloed in academic centers, but there's like two sides to this argument, right? The beauty of a platform like X and it's not there yet. Okay. Like there's all kinds of problems with community notes and it is a frustrating platform to use. And a lot of people are betting, you know, there's people betting against Elon. They think it's going to fail. I'm, I, I'm just along for the ride. I, I, I'm rooting for Elon. Um, and I think, I I think he's going to pull it off. I mean, he has a track record of doing just, just insane turnarounds in his businesses. So whether or not X ends up succeeding is, is like speculation. Okay. But the idea of scientific information being out there on the internet is provocative because it can save lives, right? Like, I mean, there were basically doctors exchanging information during the early days of the COVID pandemic, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, and that information saved lives. The downside is that it wasn't peer-reviewed, right? It's basically just like the town square of like he said, she she said. But... My argument is that, and I've talked about this like even when X was Twitter, is that I personally think it's bullshit that academic knowledge is not owned. So first of all, the writers of those papers, the doctors and scientists that write these papers don't get any royalties from them. And number two, that information becomes the proprietary information of the large academic publishing houses like your JSTOR and El Selvier and uh, they they have a cornered the market on that. So uh, and a lot of people don't know this. Like the public does not know this, even though it's public information. So uh, I think that that setup is fundamentally flawed. And you're basically siloing. So for example, if if I'm going to pay for the top five articles on the topic of divergent genetics and small cell carcinoma. If I'm going to pay for that, I want that money to go to the doctor that did the research, you know, not, not the publisher or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so open data sets, open, open research would be good for the people in community practice. And it would also be good for uh, engineers who want to experiment with making chatbots in various niches 
of clinical practice. So, uh, yeah. So that's why I wanted to learn a little bit more about this. Again, I'm not an engineer and most of you are not. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably in a similar situation as me. You're just trying to do the best you can, do right by your patients and try to be the best physician that you can. Um, but you should at least have a conceptual understanding of how LLMs work. And I am going to continue exploring the other models as well so that I can at least strategically like troubleshoot them when they do come into practice. My prediction is that, and I can, I can only speak to pathologists. My, my prediction is that pathologists of the future are going to become like software engineers today because everyone's scared that our job's going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. But somebody still has to look at the image. Like somebody still has to refine the quality of the data that you're feeding the model. And that person, like that ground truth is always going to be a human being. And it's not perfect, right? Like there's all kinds of controversies in histology. I mean, people can't agree on the classifications of thymomas. It's a tumor that arises in the chest. So I think this area is fascinating. And I think that the more pathologists and just doctors in general that get interested in how these models work and how to troubleshoot them and how to apply them to real life clinical problems. I think those are going to, those are going to be the real heroes in community medicine. So hope you enjoyed that. That was just a read aloud of, uh, Chamath's essay called large language models, how to train them and XAI's grok, a very timely topic. And that is all for today's episode of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist, bringing you high signal content fueled by 10% buffered neutral formalin. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the newsletter at chuckgmd.substack.com. Again, chuckgmd.substack.com. Check out some free downloads for your medical career at chuckgmd.gumroad.com. Again, chuckgmd.gumroad.com. Uh, and by the way, I've fell behind on uploading these to Apple and Spotify because I just because I'm doing work. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't have time for that. The whole, just so you know, like the whole cross-posting editing process for a single episode, even without video. I do these without video. It takes like over, like, like almost two hours for it to render and get all the captions and everything and, and to like, you know, write the little show notes and everything. It's very time consuming. So for the foreseeable future, this is just going to be on Substack and email. And uh, I will probably migrate the emails to Gumroad so I can start doing automated emails during the week. But uh, for some reason I can't figure out how to like, send my csv file of emails into gum road so anyway so for the time being it's just going to be on substack it's, they have a lovely in, uh, audio embedding feature which i just i just love the interface i think it's easier to use and it makes i just like it so we're going to continue c continue doing it this way so welcome your feedback as always we'll see you next time